is Jesus to you? I don't suppose any of you would say, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah. But when Matthew wanted to tell who Jesus was to him, that's how he started. And there's an important reason for that. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Who is Jesus to you? Uh, To start off, maybe some of you saw the interview between Joe Biden and Stephen Colbert, which went viral. I'm going to show, if we could turn off the stage lights, we're going to show a brief excerpt from that video. A couple months before he died, I was at his house, and uh, he said, Dad, sit down. I want to talk to you with Hallie, his wife, an incredible kid. And he said, Dad, uh, I know how much you love me. He said, you've got to promise me something. Promise me you're going to be all right. Because no matter what happens, Dad, I'm going to be all right. Promise me. This, this is a kid who, 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 I don't know what it was about him. He had this enormous sense of empathy. And I'm on the making this up. I know I maybe sound like a father. I hope I... Anyway, but, but, but it's it real. Like, it sounds like you love him, sir. Oh, jeez. I mean, I... Uh, how has your faith, I know you're a man of deep faith, how has your faith helped you respond to having lost your, your first wife and, and your daughter and now your son? How important is that in your life and in what ways has it helped you? First of all, it's a little embarrassing to speak about me. There's so many people, maybe some people in the audience, who've had losses as severe or worse than mine and didn't have the incredible support I have. I have such an incredible family. I, and so I, I feel self-conscious talking about, the loss is serious and it's consequential, but there's so many other people going through this. But for me, you know, my wife, when she wants to, she's, she's a professor, when she wants to leave me messages, she literally tapes them on my mirror when I'm shaving. And she, there's, she put up a, a quote from Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard said, faith sees best in the dark. And for me, my religion is just an enormous sense of solace. And some of it relates to rituals, some of it relates to just comfort of what you've done your whole life. I go to Mass and I, 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 I'm able to be just alone, even in the crowd. I'm, you're alone. I, I uh, say the rosary. I find it to be incredibly comforting. And so... What, what my faith has done is, is it sort of takes everything about my life with my parents and my siblings and all the comforting things and all the good things that have happened have happened around the culture of my religion and the theology of my religion. And I, I don't know how to explain it more than that, but it's just, it's just a place you can go. Uh, and by the way, Now, if you haven't seen the whole interview, uh, I recommend it. It's very moving. You can see his heart, and you can see his faith coming out of this. And he's an active, practicing Catholic. I I think we want to adjust a few things to it, but but the the takeaway from this should be it was a very moving 
testimony, a very moving sharing on the late night show. In fact, I said to my son, who's run for political office himself, the oldest son, not the one that's here, I said to my son on the phone, I, said, I asked him if he'd seen it, and I said, you know, it's very moving. I said, in fact, it's the first time I thought about voting for Joe Biden if he runs. Now, because he was a budding politician at one point, he calmed me down. He said, well, look, you know, there's a difference between a, a good man and an effective president, but never mind. But really what I want to say is, the whole thing, I, I would say a lot of positives about it, okay? I, I think one little caveat we want to make is he talks about his, you know, uh, was Stephen Colbert leads him into this and asks, how has your faith helped you to respond to your loss? And if you don't know Joe Biden's background, he, he, many years ago, when he was in Congress, his wife was in a car accident that killed the, killed the wife, killed the daughter, and left two sons severely injured, one in a body cast. And then, more recently, his adult son died from a brain tumor, I believe it was. And that's what this interview was about. How has your faith helped you respond to your loss? Now, the one caveat, a little caveat I want to make is, the question is not really, how does your faith, right? The question is, how does Jesus, how does God? Because it's not really, I don't depend on my faith, right? I depend on Jesus, I depend on God. And you can understand why Stephen Colbert asked the question the way he did, because really our culture doesn't allow us to say how God helps us, because that just sounds too absolutistic and exclusive. We can talk about how faith, because faith is a wonderful thing. Saying that you worship the true God, and you know, that's awkward. But to say that you're a person of faith, that's okay. You have your faith, I have my faith, we're all accepting of each other, and faith can help sustain us. So I'd make a little caveat there. It's not really about faith, or about, you know, as Joe Biden answers, my religion is an enormous solace to me. It's not really about our religion, right? It's about Jesus and Christ. But, but if we make that little adjustment, we can really embrace what he's talking about. Because this is true. You'll know it if you've suffered loss. That Jesus makes a huge difference to us. And, and that's a big part of, of what he is. It's not enough but it's a big part of who he is. This notion that Jesus makes a big difference in our lives and provides us comfort in, in times of despair and stress and struggle, in times of loss, this is what I've been talking about, what sociologists call the privatized therapeutic Jesus. Now, I want to say it again. This is a huge part of who Jesus is to us. And this is perfectly legitimate, perfectly valid. Who is Jesus to you? It's perfectly legitimate to say, he's the one who helps me through life's troubling times. Perfectly legitimate. Not sufficient, but true and important. The trouble is, our culture, and maybe us as human beings, we get narcissistic, is that we shrink Jesus down to this. We shrink Jesus down to somebody who helps me through tough times. We shrink God down to somebody who helps me get through loss when my son or my parents die. We shrink him. He turns into a little Jesus. He's a little Jesus, a therapist. You know? And if we don't know Jesus, we can go to a therapist. But Jesus is much better than a therapist, so we can save the money. And we go to Jesus, and I don't mean to mock it. It's a perfectly legitimate function that Jesus serves in our lives. 
but it's a little Jesus. Now, if we want to be a bit better in our tradition, right? If I asked you who is Jesus for you, you'd hopefully, or else I failed in my job, you'd hopefully soon say he's the one who saved me from my sins, right? But you see, that's still a little Jesus. Jesus does save us from our sins. And, and, and it's a crucial function that he plays in our lives. We want to be saved from our sins. Jesus died for me on the cross. That's crucial. and we, we want that. But it's still a little Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the Jesus of salvation history. In the Bible, we have a big Jesus, not a little Jesus. And what I want to show you from Matthew 1 and 2 today is how big Jesus is in the Bible compared to our abbreviated, truncated, shortened, compressed Jesus. Now, as both uh, Emily and Megan, the worship leader and the presider, mentioned, this is the continuation. I was going to stop, you know, for the last year, we worked our way through the whole Old Testament and asked you know, what's the big narrative? What's the big story going on here? And I thought, wow, you know, this is, a, this is an unusual church that would hang in there for a year in order to follow the whole narrative of the Bible. Now, let me tell you this. You got a great deal in the bargain if you paid attention. Because this may be the only time in your life where in the course of about 40 sermons, you're going to have an opportunity to grasp the whole of the Bible. And how can you understand any of the pieces unless you understand the whole? So, you know, it's not something I'd apologize for. This is, it was new to me. You know, there's a few books that have done it, a few churches that have done it. I tried to do it. It's a lot of work. We, we, we made it through. You concentrated. I worked hard. We made it. Uh, now, look, here's the thing. Don't waste it. That will give you the framework for any Bible study, any Bible reading you ever do again. It'll give you the framework. And to help make it stick, and particularly for the sake of visitors, newcomers, you're not going to understand what we do in the next few weeks without knowing the background. So I have updated, it only covered three quarters of the Bible before, in your bulletin I have updated, you've got 12 pages that summarizes the Bible. Yeah, I left out a few stuff, all the killings and, you know... Uh, 12 pages that summarizes the Bible from beginning to end. You know, you can do this. You can know, know this. Don't carry it with you. You can carry it inside your brain for the, next, for the rest of your lives. And it'll always give you a place to put the Bible text that you deal with. So visitors, if this is the only time you're here, you pick the best week to come. Old timers, pop quiz next week. No. <laughs> you know I've done it. I would do it again, but no. So people ask me, okay, you can't stop, you know, the whole Old Testament, one year, you can't stop. Uh, somebody said, what are you going to preach on in the fall? I said, well, I, I don't know, I was thinking about shifting into. And they said, what do you mean? You did the whole Old Testament and, and haven't yet explained how it helps us understand the New Testament. How can we stop here? So here's the challenge. So the next few weeks, we're going to look at how understanding the Old Testament helps us understand the New Today we're going to begin to ask, how does understanding the Old Testament help us to understand Jesus? Now, I don't know how long this is going to last because I've never done this before. And I don't know of any books that really do it. I'm feeling my way forward. Uh, come along with me. Let's see where we get. 
I'm sure it'll be intriguing, if not always. Well, anyway, moving on. We don't have the biblical answer to who is Jesus just in these two chapters of Matthew. All we're going to get is that Matthew chapter 1 and 2 will show us this, that our Jesus is a lot smaller than Matthew's Jesus. Our Jesus does a lot less than the Old Testament Jesus. So follow me along as we look at this. Matthew chapter 1 and 2. What is the biblical Jesus do? Notice, who is Jesus? And Matthew 1 begins. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Who is Jesus? He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. Chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus, David, Abraham. Notice the order. This is not just random. Jesus, David, Abraham. You know it's not random because now Matthew then, he said, Jesus, David, Abraham. Now Matthew talks about Abraham. Then he talks about David. Then he talks about Jesus. Do you get it? Jesus, David, Abraham. And he backs up Abraham, David, Jesus. He puts that pattern in there to get your attention. Now why Abraham? You know that. Why David, you might not know. We didn't stress that so much. But why Abraham? You see, God started to do something, Genesis 12. God started to do something 1,500 years earlier. God started, God was facing this crisis because he made a beautiful world. And he, he put people in it. And the people corrupted that world and that world fell. And all the disasters we face since have been because mankind corrupted God's beautiful world. 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, more or less, God said, I'm going to fix this world. And I'm going to fix it by starting with Abraham. And then through Abraham, through his descendants, I'm going to raise up a nation. I'm going to, he's going to have a myriad descendants. And then I'm going to give them their own land. I'm going to give them Israel. And then they're going to become a light. They're going to worship me and obey me, and I'm going to bless them, and they'll be a light to all the nations, and all the nations will come to Israel to learn about me. And if you've been here the last year, you know, it didn't work like that. We sing this song about God Almighty to save. But it didn't work like that. Israel... God off made the promises. God blessed. God gave them descendants and they did not worship and obey. God gave them land. They did not worship and obey. And God didn't give them the nations. What God said, after warning, 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 God said, okay, you won't worship and obey. You won't reciprocate. I blessed you. You ignore me. So I take away your land and I take away your descendants. And he had them conquered and deported. Refugees like the Syrians fleeing into Europe now. That's what Israel faced. And then in exile, Israel repented, and God said, I'll bring you back. And he brought back the Abrahamic promises. He brought the descendants, and he brought them back, the survivors, he brought them back to the land. And he said, now worship and obey. And you know, again, they didn't. And the prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to a future day when God was going to do something new. And God was going to change Israel from the inside. 
God was going to change people from the inside so that then they'd worship and then they'd obey. And he'd restore Eden from all of them. Matthew begins by asking the question, Who is Jesus? And he answers, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Abrahamic promises. This day that God promised to Abraham, this day that the prophets promised, this day is finally coming true. The whole of the Old Testament is going to now be fulfilled because Jesus has come. Jesus, son of Abraham. Jesus, son of David. What was the promise to David? David was a man of war. He conquered the land. He conquered Jerusalem. He said, God, I want, I've conquered this city. I want to put a temple to you in this city so that all Israel will come and worship. And God said, no, you're a man of war. You can't build the temple. Your son will build it, but you won't. But I, he said, your heart is right. So from you, there will always be a king on the throne. Or if you're one of your descendants, will always be on the throne of Israel. Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Jesus, the fulfillment of all of God's promises through all of history. His promises to Abraham and his promises to David. Jesus, the fulfillment of all God's promises to his people throughout history. The fulfillment of global promises. He is not just Savior for my sins. He is, first of all, the Savior. He is, first of all, the salvation historical Jesus. The Jesus who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises from creation until the end of time. Jesus is more than that. He's more than the salvation historical Jesus, the Jesus of all time and all God's promises. Jesus is cosmic. This is verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And Joseph wanted to save her that the graves were going to put her away quietly until an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Don't put her away. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, in fulfillment of the promises through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not God with us in the sense that God is with you and I when we go, is God is with you and me when we go through struggles. God with us in a unique, unprecedented sense. God with us in that the Spirit of God. Now, they didn't conceive in that day. They didn't conceive of the Spirit as the third person of a trinity. They, they conceived of God, of the Spirit of God, as the life force, which gave God his power and his purity and his holiness and his virtue. This child, Matthew says, is conceived by God, born of a virgin. This is not just like Abraham. This is not just like David. God, from the only time in history, has conceived this child. 
He's not only the fulfillment of the promises of Israel. He's not only the deliverer from the exile. He's not only the, the one who fulfilled the promise to David to have a, a descendant on the throne. He's not just the fulfillment of all of Abraham's promises. This is an unprecedented event that God has broken into our world, not in just like a miracle, like he heals somebody. But God himself somehow come in the flesh. And not as a fully formed heroic adult, but as a baby in the womb. This is a salvation historical Jesus, but this is also a cosmic Jesus. He's also a geopolitical Jesus. You know the story of the Magi. These travelers, astrologers, astronomers from the east, who come to Israel. Chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod. Uh, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. What? During the time of King Herod. These magi from the east come to Jerusalem and say, during the time of King Herod, they ask King Herod, who is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Now there's a problem here. King Herod was called king of the Jews, but he wasn't Jewish. He was just somebody who paid the Romans to make him king. The Jews hated him. He tried to curry favor. His family had some huge violent tendencies. King Herod, because he was half Jewish, mixed breed, and remember what Ezra and Nehemiah said about mixed breeds, because he was half Jewish, he wouldn't eat pork. But he was murderous. He killed some of his sons. So the emperor said about him, the emperor who appointed him said about him, better be Herod's pig than his son. If you're at least his pig, you'll live. If his, his son, he may die. Herod, King Herod, and the Magi come and say, well, who is the one who's been born king of the Jews? The Magi might not have meant this, but clearly God meant this. What, what could antagonize Herod more than this? Who's the legitimate king of the Jews? Not a half-breed, not a corrupt politician, not a violent, murderous guy who's willing to sacrifice his own family. Jesus is coming as the fulfillment of all God's blessings and religious, spiritual blessings on Abraham and David. Well, Abraham. But Jesus is also coming to reign as the son of David. Jesus is also coming to reign instead of King David. Jesus is not just a spiritual savior, a promise keeper. Jesus is a political figure. He's coming to reign. He's the fulfillment of the promises. At some level, he's cosmic, and, and no Jew could get his mind around the idea of a divine incarnation. They're struggling to figure out how to phrase this, how to put it, so that it fits within the Old Testament. He's a cosmic Jesus. And he's a political Jesus. But what are we going to do with this? You see how it's broadening our circle, our understanding of who Jesus is. And then he's more than that. Because what happens next? 
When the Magi went home, an angel of the Lord warned them, don't go back to Herod and tell him where you found this baby. Herod will kill him. So the Magi went home another way. And, and Herod kept waiting, waiting, waiting. Finally, he figured out that Magi had outtoxed him. So Herod, who wants to still be king, decides the only thing he can do is go to the village of Bethlehem and kill, I don't know, 10, 15, we don't know. It, it was a village, it wasn't huge numbers, but he killed 10 or 15 babies. He didn't know which one was Jesus. Just kill them all. And we hear about the discovery of the parents of, or the whatever, of that baby that was just killed and, and dumped in the water, coast off Boston. But here Herod is so paranoid and crazed that he'd kill all the babies in that town about Jesus' age. And the angel said to Joseph, get up. Take the child and, and, and his mother and escape to Egypt. Those of you who've been here the last year, you know Egypt. Egypt is a place where Jews escape from. It's not a place where Jews escape to. And then Herod kills all the boys in Bethlehem. When Israel's escaping, it's not the Jewish boys who die. It's the Egyptian boys, the Egyptian children. But now, when Joseph escapes, it's the Jewish boys who die. Do you see the allusions to the escape from Egypt? And then verse 18, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. This describes the first exile. When the Babylonians came in and conquered Israel and killed the soldiers, brutalized the women, slaughtered the children. And Isaiah, this comes from Isaiah, and Isaiah describes the people of Israel. Ramah was a, was a ferrying point. They would gather the refugees in Ramah before deporting them to Babylonia, just like the Holocaust in Germany. It was a ferrying point to, to bring the, those who survived off into exile as they wept for their husbands, their siblings, and their children. A voice is heard in Mama, weeping in great mourning. So you see what Matthew is doing, what he's alluding to, what he describes to you. Who's Jesus? He reminds Israel of the Exodus, the deliverance from the Exodus. But now, Joseph flees into Egypt. And then he reminds Israel of the exile. So Jesus is himself the embodiment of Israel's history. All that Israel suffered in Egypt and in the exile. That Jesus is now coming to be the true Israel. To walk through the same or similar and analogical historical pathway that Israel walked through Egypt and exile. Only this time, Jesus is coming to be the one who truly does worship God. Jesus is coming to be the one who truly does serve God. Jesus is coming to do those things that Israel failed to do, which brought judgment on Israel. Jesus is now coming to do that. Do you see how much bigger this Jesus is than our Jesus? 
He didn't just die for our sins. He's the fulfillment of all God's plans through all of history. He's heaven come down into our world. He's a challenge, not just to our sinfulness, but he's a challenge to our presidents and prime ministers, especially those who are corrupt. He's the fulfillment of all that Israel was supposed to be and failed to be. He is the fulfillment of all that we're supposed to be and fail to be. This Jesus is a global Jesus, not a little private Jesus that helps us in crisis. Not a little private Jesus who forgives our sin. He does all of that. But he's bigger, global, universal, cosmic. Yeah, but. So, Matthew has set us up in these first four passages to see how big Jesus is. He set us up, and now he cuts our feet out from under us. Because what's the last paragraph here? Chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. Herod dies, and that angel comes back to Joseph in Egypt and says, look, the one who tried to kill your son is dead. You can go back home now. And so, verse 21, Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, the son of Herod, was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was uh, afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to Galilee. And he went and lived in a little village, obscure little village called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be a Nazarene. Suddenly, this huge Jesus gets really, really small. Because now he's just the son of a peasant who's afraid of the king living, hiding out in an obscure village so that his life can be saved. Let me tell you how small this Jesus is. And it relates to Hanukkah. 150 years or so before Jesus was born, there was a crazed, paranoid dictator uh, He'd taken over a part of the kingdom that Alexander the Great had died, and he took over part of Alexander's kingdom. His kingdom was uh, centered in Syria. The Seleucid dynasty. The king's name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes. He had thoughts of grandeur and divinity. Antiochus Epiphanes eventually attacks Israel and Jerusalem. And he conquers the city. He pilfers the temple. A a pagan goes into the temple of God and steals stuff. He slaughters pigs on the altar so that Israel can't worship God in that altar anymore. Antiochus Epiphanes puts a fortress for the Roman army inside the holy city of Jerusalem. He taxes the people to support his army. 
He forbids them circumcision. He forbids them to worship on the Sabbath. He forbids them sacrifice. He forbids the Bible on threat of death. And he, he requires everybody to sacrifice to idols. 150 years before Jesus, a pagan ruler did this in Jerusalem. There was a priest in Jerusalem, a man by the name of Mattathias. Mattathias couldn't stand it. He fled to the wilderness and took his family with him. Several sons, his whole family. They went out in the wilderness so they could worship God without threat of death and without seeing the corruption because so many people in Israel, in Jerusalem, had, had corrupted in order to save their lives. Mattathias goes out to the wilderness to save his life and his family and to worship God. But it's not long before the Seleucids decide to consolidate their control, not only over Jerusalem, but they consolidate their control over the countryside. It's not long before some of the soldiers end up in Mattathias' new obscure hometown. And Mattathias is a priest. So they call him out and they tell him, sacrifice a pig on this altar to the idols. Mattathias refuses. So some other Jew standing around kind of calm the situation down so they don't, don't all get slaughtered. Some other Jew comes out from the crowd and he comes forward and he starts to make this sacrifice. Mattathias grabs a sword and he kills the Jew and he kills the soldier and he yells to his sons, escape. They all go into the wilderness and they form a guerrilla army. And then Mattathias is dead within a year from battles, running battles with the Syrian forces. But his son, Judas Maccabeus, takes his place and leads the revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. And eventually Antiochus dies and there's unrest in the capital city. The army goes back and Judas Maccabeus marches into the city of Jerusalem rededicates that temple. And Hanukkah, every year, still celebrates what Judas Maccabeus did. And for a hundred years, for the first time in centuries, for a hundred years, Israel was an independent nation. They could worship God. They could obey Him. And they lived in freedom and liberty. This is what Israel was looking for. Another Mattathias to come. Because the Romans eventually came in and they conquered the Maccabean dynasty. The Romans came in and they afflicted these people. Again, pagan, super, pagan superpower dominating your country. They were looking for somebody like Isis. They were looking for somebody like Mattathias. They were looking for someone, a priest from Jerusalem, who would lead a guerrilla army and conquer their enemy who occupied them. And this salvation historical Jesus and his father, this cosmic Jesus, this presence of God, this king of the Jews, 
this embodiment of Israel's history from Egypt to exile, his father brings him back to Palestine. And they see that Archelaus is king in Jerusalem and Judea, and they say, this is not safe. And they flee to the village where they can live in anonymity and safety. This is not the Jesus of our private lives, either who nurtures us or saves us from sin. This is a huge, international, cosmic level, nationally significant Jesus, Matthew tells us, in four stories. And then in the fifth story, he asks us, or is it? Come back next week. Maybe we'll figure it out. Let's pray together.